today, as I said, we're going to do a little bit of a, a bigger a dive into to bigger systematic ideas, big concepts for us to unpack. It'll be a little bit heady at times, and um, hopefully uh, there'll be some words that are very Christian-y. Uh, I'll do my best to unpack those as we go, um, but let's, let's just dive into the text. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. His brother led him up to a, a high mountain by themselves, uh, and, and there's all sorts of theories of exactly what the mountain is, um, whether it's a Tabor, whether it's, um, um, oh, I forgot the giant one just north of Caesarea Philippi, um, but no one knows. They just have guesses. <clears throat> and he was uh, Hebron, Hebron's the other one, uh, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Jesus, Jesus picks out his three, decides to hike up this mountain, and suddenly, like, obviously something changed. Like, even his clothes are, like, glowing and dazzling and light, and his face shines so much, it's like sun. Like, um, uh, my, we, we were at the planetarium yesterday, and we were um, watching a video on uh, the solar eclipse that's coming up uh, in April, and so, but you can't stare at it. Even when the moon's blocking the sun, you're not supposed to stare right at it. And so there's something about Jesus's glow in that moment. It's like burning of the eyeballs um, for these disciples. And there's a lot of language that um, comes up in the Old Testament when angels come. Um, <clears throat> language uh, out of the book of Ezekiel when God himself is sitting on a throne. It's very similar language. It's the, it's the language of the heavenlies kind of being opened up. And there were two Old Testament titans there, Moses the lawgiver, uh, who often represents the Torah. Uh, We call the whole Torah the book of Moses, whether Moses wrote every book or not. And then Elijah, who's the quintessential prophet. Um, He represents often the prophets, the law and the prophets. And so in some ways, this is the whole Old Testament. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here if you wish. I will make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Um, as I said, uh, and I already covered, I won't cover it again, but um, I don't think Peter's being a doofus. I think Peter's thinking back to some of his scriptures and trying to apply them. And he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter does like get cut off, not God saying, Peter, you're an idiot, let's do this, but, but God just saying, this is my beloved son. But let's go back to Moses and Elijah, because yes, they represent the law and the prophets, and, and I think that's perfectly good. I don't think that's wrong. I, I think that's a wonderful connection point. But both of these men also have their own mountain moments, do they not? What's Moses' mountain moment? Sinai, right? And what happened at Sinai? What about the first time he goes to Sinai? Do we know? Yeah, the burning bush. It's his first encounter, actually, at Sinai. Um, and uh, he sees the burning bush. God speaks to him, goes back to Egypt, does this thing. And then he takes his people back to where he encountered God the first time, back to this mountain. And what does he do when he gets to the mountain? When he goes up the mountain, does he bring all of Israel with him? No, actually, one of the times, he just brings three people with him. Um, so there's some symbolism already in Jesus' storytelling. When he's waiting for God to speak, how long does that take? Does anybody know? Well, one of the times, it's like six days. Um, there's like a six-day waiting period, which, once again, we get it six days later, this story happens. Um, what sort of overshadows the mountain? 
Yeah, a cloud, glory settles on the mountain. And what happens to Moses' face? Yeah, it's, it's transformed. It starts glowing enough that he has to like veil. He puts a veil over his face because it's so glowy uh, for some reason, right? And God speaks in this mountain. What about Elijah? Elijah also has a bush encounter, right? And he gets to the bush and God's not there and he's all, woe is me, right? He gets some shade from a bush, but it's not burning. There's no presence of God in that moment. And then he ends up where? Where does he eventually run off to when Jezebel's chasing him? Yeah, a cave. Where's the cave? It's back at Sinai, actually. He heads all the way down back to, um, to, to that same area. And he looks for God to speak because God has spoken there once before. And, and he's looking for all the things that Moses had. I want, I want clouds and lightning and light and all this kind of stuff. But, but what, how does God eventually speak to him there? Yeah, it's like quiet. It's like a whisper. Yeah. He has a, he has a bit of a different experience, but both of them, in, in this mountain place, encounter God. They see him or hear him in these mountain places. It's, it's a significant part of both of their stories. And there's so much symbolism already, particularly Moses' symbolism, in what Jesus is experiencing, that God is speaking in this holy mountain. And we see the Old Testament actually quoted uh, um, kind of three times, even in that short little sentence. Uh, this is my son, uh, which is really Psalm 2, and this, this, the writings, the Psalms are the, the ketuvim, the, the writings, the wisdom literature, um, or poetry. Uh, whom I love and I'm well pleased, which is Isaiah 42. This is the prophets, the Nevaim, and then listen to him, Deuteronomy 18, which is the Torah. So even in the short quote, you get like Psalm, Isaiah, Torah. Like you get the Psalm and the prophets, which another Midrash actually taught when the Messiah comes. One of the ways we'll know is that all the Tanakh, all the Old Testament would testify about him. And so there's all these pieces that are rich and dense. But then we get this transfiguration itself, which is really where I want to camp. Because it's not something that happens, I think, to Jesus. It's probably not the best way to think about the transfiguration. It's not like Jesus was there and then God suddenly transfigured him and it's like he was a passive experience of that. But perhaps more the, the way to think of this moment is around sort of an unveiling. Um, especially for Peter, James, and John. That in some ways the, the veil... Um, like, um, what's the Christmas song? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. I think somehow the veil was taken away in this moment. But they've seen Jesus fully human for however long they've been walking with him up to this point. And, and, and now, when he's just spoken about like the most human thing, which is, I gotta go and I gotta die. I gotta suffer and die. Right after that, and perhaps as a way to embolden these disciples, perhaps as a way to be like, look, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He, he takes this moment and he shows them in some ways his like fully godness in a way that he doesn't do to anybody really else, maybe a little bit after the resurrection. And to ask the question, all right, what is God like? Because for them, it's like Moses has had a little bit of a shot of seeing God, but, but that's about it. And even then, it was just God's, backside, rear end, whatever it is. <clears throat> but now, I think for these disciples, I think the communication, what's being communicated is like, to, to, see, to see God, to see Jesus is to see God. And Jesus will say as much, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
It's one of the key differences, I think, in the Moses story versus his Jesus story. Moses is like the moon, right? It's like there's a, the only way we see the moon, the only way the moon glows is because of the sun, right? That's all moonbeams are, like reflected sunbeams back to us. And so we don't see the sun, but we can see the moon. And I think when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has that, re- that reflectiveness to him. The, the light doesn't necessarily start with Moses. It's kind of a reflection of what his encounter with God was like. But here, there's no sense of that. It is Jesus that is truly the source. He is the sun beaming down in the, this moment. Even his, faith, even his clothes become super radiant. Ephraim of Syria, uh, the Syrian, says that the prophets rejoiced when they saw this, when they saw his humanity, which they had not known. But the apostles also rejoiced when they saw the glory of his divinity, which they had not known. But those in the Old Testament like, knew there was some divine intervention that was going to happen in the, in the future, and they didn't know he was going to be human, per se. And now these prophets are, or these disciples are like, oh, Jesus really, truly is divine. And the flow of this whole section is pretty unique as well. Partly why I think the last verse of 16 uh, ties into the story in 17. Because you get sort of them go up to Caesarea Philippi and you get Peter's confession, right? That's the, that's the sort of thing that happens uh, as part of the story. You get the confession. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus is like, okay, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to have to take up your cross, after the confession comes the, the life that Jesus actually calls people into, this cruciformed, shaped life, this, this life shaped by what the cross is truly about. It's what it looks like to be a disciple. And then Jesus says, and, and die, which is where Jesus goes. And then Jesus speaks of resurrection, coming right after that. He says, but I will come back in three days. And then we get this story, the story of what seems like glorification. The story of almost everything sort of revealed as it should be. Which is a trajectory, I think, of everyone in faith. There's some confession of who Jesus is. There's then the life that we are now to live in light of that confession. And then there's death, resurrection, and glorification. And glorification is a big word, but um, it's a word associated with how things should be, like when things are restored as they should be, what will it look like? That's so much of the concept of glorification. And I submit for this moment, the disciples get a glimpse of the kingdom to come, a glimpse of some sort of future, the glimpse of some sort of destiny about creation, where we're all headed. And it's this prime source for informing this story is a prime source of informing what is called eschatology, the, the theology of things to come, where we are going. You see, I, I think we lose um, so much of what um, Judeo-Christianity has brought to the table and how we view things like history. We, we take it for granted. Um, it says um, David Foster Wallace talks about um, water and how fish... If you ask how the water was today, they wouldn't understand because it's what they are in. It's what they know. It's just standard. We believe that history, creation itself, has a goal, a purpose, a telos, a direction that history is going in, which is different than how the world at large and even the ancient world really thought about how history worked, right? 
If you deal with Hinduism, history is a cycle. It's not a, there's no trajectory to it. It's a, a thing that just is on repeat in some ways. It's a cycle. It's rich and ancient in its thoughts, but it says that existence is this sort of circle that we are all caught in. It's never ending. Or perhaps nihilism or secularism. There's really no purpose. And we don't really have a trajectory. At some point, the sun will go supernova and we'll all get wiped off. And that's the end of the story. But the Christian and Jewish tradition has always said no to the storyline. Thomas Cahill describes it well in the book, The The Gift of the Jews. But the idea of progress itself, like the very concept of progress, was very much a Judeo-Christian idea more than it was any other culture brought to the table. That there's a goal, that there's a direction of how history works. And the world that we presently know it is sort of interim. It's provisional. It's temporary. But it's also to say that it's damaged, broken, fallen. We live in a world gone wrong in a lot of ways. But this state, the state we're in, is not the end of the story. We, we don't stay stuck in sort of this cycle that never ends. It's, there, there is a trajectory, what, what Peter will call apocatastasis. It's a big Greek word. Um, but, but he uses it in Acts 3. It's this beautiful world, a word talking about how we're waiting for the world to be put back together again. He tells this guy he heals. He's like, oh, we're waiting for the apocatastasis of, of the world, of human history. That humanity, history, creation will be restored beyond sin, corruption, and death. And you start seeing, I think, what, what the story is telling us today is that that transformation on the mountain was a glimpse behind the veil, behind the curtain a little bit, that we all will get to taste one day. Because Paul, Peter, John, they'll all pick up on the symbolism in their writings. Like Romans 8, Paul will say this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons or children of God. So that's you and me. We are the children of God. And right now, we look like a bunch of Atlantans in a room worshiping on a Sunday. That's what we look like right now. Because we haven't been fully revealed, as Paul would say. Like, that the fullness of what we are expecting just isn't here yet. And he keeps going. For creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so there's, there's a glory that's coming, that the children of God, we get to, to show first, and then creation follows. Let me be extra clear. The end of the story is not about a transfer to another place, but stepping into a different time or age. We're, where we're at, but stepping into a new time and age. It, it's not, and hear me, I'm, I'm going to rub against some of the theology that you guys... Normally, I, like, I love the gray areas of theology, but when there's bad theology... I do need to call it out. And I'm going to call out some bad theology today. The theology that the earth is this dump and it's a mess and God just needs to take us off of it and take us somewhere else is bad theology. It's not biblical theology either. 
It's, it's very American, and it's very 150 years old. It's very new. And I want to be cautious, because I don't think that's what actually Scripture presents to us. But that there is a future that will arrive, a new time, where everything is redeemed from bondage and decay. And it begins with the revealing of the children of God. That's what, that's what Paul just said. The future hope is a new time, not a new place. It's what we catch a glimpse of in the Mount of Transfiguration. When Revelation actually talks about new heaven and new earth, it actually uses new as like a new kind, like 2.0, not replaced. And we've got to be cautious on how we think about that. Jesus was transfigured from a Galilean Jew in the first century to a shining bright sun that, that we'd be overwhelmed to look at. And all that is nature, and all that is redeemed in the storyline will also go through the same kind of transfiguration. As, as um, Daniel says, the, the righteous will shine as the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Like you all, if you're in Jesus, will also shine in the end. There'll be some change. We sometimes call it deification. It's another big theological word, or the Eastern Church calls it theosis, but uh, deification. In some ways, we participate in this same thing. As Jesus transforms on this mountain, as he has this metamorphosis moment on the mountain, we also, as, as, as I said, as Paul, as Peter, and as John, we'll, we'll talk about Peter and John in a second, uh, state, we also get to participate in that same thing. Peter says, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that, this is, that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says we become partakers, participants in the, in the nature that is divine. Something about us that actually gets to experience what is truly divine. We say things like God in Christ joins humanity. So that's the Christmas story. Christ comes to this world. He joins humanity so that humanity can join God in Christ. That's the storyline. And God takes all of our destruction and takes it into Jesus. Jesus just, it destroys Jesus, right? He dies in the storyline. But he, but he takes all of that into himself so that he can then heal it. So that we participate in the divine. We're, we're liberated from the corrupt nature, the, the, the world through sinful desire. We're, we're liberated from that. We're brought out of that. And Jesus is the restorer of all things. He started restoring things. And he invites us into that process. That's why, that's why we'll hear that to be in Christ is to become a, a new creation. Families in Christ are a new creation. And this is about transformation or something different. We've, we've metamorphosed in some ways. Already. And John, our, our third person, he'll say, Beloved, this is 1 John 3 2, we are God's children now. Good news. You, right now, God's, you are God's son, you are God's daughter. John's like, I need you to know you are that right now. You have that. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So we're not just going to see him and be amazed by it, which is really cool, but we're going to see him and then something about us is going to become just like him. Like, you haven't seen your best self yet. That's, that's good news. 
particularly as we get older. You're like, I don't see my best, I don't, I don't even see myself in myself anymore. Um, I see like an older version of myself now. It, but there's a future where we will finally have our best and truest self. In some ways, it seems like we'll still be recognizable, but glorified. A sin and corruption gets put in a casket, but we get transfigured. And maybe even recognize, oh, there's Kevin, there's Megan. But, but we haven't seen our best selves, but we're going to. And this is true of creation itself, too. That's what, what Paul was hitting on, is that creation has this groaning. Creation's longing for this day, too. As part of our sabbatical, we had the chance to go um, to this place called Lauterbrunnen. Um, here's, here's a picture of Lauterbrunnen. Um, and and Lauterbrunnen, um, I, I know uh, uh, Rory and Krista, I'm like, you have to go here. Um, and if you're a Tolkien fan, this is what Rivendell was, was modeled after. Uh, so this is like heaven on earth. Um, and and we, we got there and we're like, this is incredible. And so we got to, to visit it. There's like 17 waterfalls that line the valley. It is every little Swiss German town. exactly how you picture little tiny Swiss German towns. Um, there's no cars in most of the towns. You have to take cable cars. To, but it's beautiful. It's just this amazing place that, that we got to go visit. And like, I mean, we went to Jerusalem. We went to like all these places that are holy and, and good. And it was like here that like we, we felt the, the divine the most, just the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of these things. They were amazing. And, and perhaps you, you've had places, standing on the edge of the beach or visiting the Grand Canyon or whatever it is, just getting up to the North Georgia Mountains maybe, whatever, whatever it may be. You've seen like the grandeur of beautiful places. you felt in your chest maybe just smallness or whatever it may be. But that's still a fallen place. If the grandeur of nature we see now is still fallen in nature, imagine how glorious everything will be when it's fully restored. Like if we weren't glorified as well, I think it would just kill us, right? We'd be like, this is too much for me and I'm just going to melt, melt my face or whatever, it's going to happen. But God's inviting us into this redeemed thing. But as part of this, here's, here's my little critique. There, there's a theology, and that escapism theology is packaged with this like hyper-violent, doom-oriented, gotta have this mega war in the Middle East before all things wrap up kind of theology. That we're, we're, our goal is to escape, right? We're gonna be on an airplane, and then suddenly our body's gonna disappear, and it's gonna be folded close to the chair, right? And for all you younger people, that's from a terrible book series from the late 90s called Left Behind. I think there's a Nicolas Cage movie you can watch now. <clears throat> late Great Planet Earth, Blood Moons, all these things. All the rest. I'm going to throw some of you off. They're, they're not true. Like, I'm not going to unpack it now. You, you, we can discuss it on Slack. Rapture theology how the Americans talk about it. It's not a true theology. Um, there is a rapture that we all kind of experience it when God finally returns, but the, the idea that we're all just going to disappear one day and hopefully we'll leave note or something. It's a theology with a short history. I could recommend some books as well. 
Um, the, the, the tagline I have is, it's time to, for left behind to be left behind. Um, but I want to be cautious that we, we haven't created this eschatology that's just not biblical. But there's a restoration of, of here, and Jesus gives us this little glimpse on the mountain. And it's not just about the future, because the disciples, when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Rightfully so. God speaks. It's incredible this moment. Jesus came and touched them. So Jesus is still embodied in the story in this moment, saying, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So everything vaporized or whatever. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So at some point, yes, they, the world probably didn't, wouldn't understand him as God unless this happened, um, unless he had been risen. The disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So this is just a scribe saying, this isn't necessarily um, exactly um, meant to be literal because that's how they're asking. Um, but he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so Jesus, as the disciples understood, is referring to John the Baptist. He was, this Elijah came. Um, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And so Jesus then connects his story to the fact that John the Baptist had just been killed as well. And Jesus continues to point out the both and of new creation. Yes, Elijah came, and he died. But even that, even, John, even John's death is the part of the restoration of all things. There's new things now being ushered in. C.S. Lewis always has um, imaginative theology, um, as, as some people call it, as he storytells. And he talks about the Shadowlands, um, the, the great divorce. Shadowlands are sort of the, this gray town, um, the kind of place that we are live. But, but the people are eventually taken up to heaven, and they can hardly stand it. Like, because the grass hurts their feet. Like, they're not substantive enough to actually experience the, 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 the heavenlies. And I think that's like us now. We live in some sort of shadowland state, not yet ready for the future. In the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia series, to, to keep going, Narnia is destroyed. And all those who followed Aslan uh, entered heaven, which looked like Narnia, only more. It's like Narnia in greater ways. The new residents found their five senses for all heightened colors were more vibrant. Food was more luscious. Smells more intoxicating. Energy became boundless. And Narnia grew. The Narnia that once they once knew was now oddly familiar and strangely alien all at once. And they realized that all along, Narnia they knew once was just a reflection, just a shadow of the true reality. And I think C.S. Lewis captures a very biblical understanding of what we have in store. And you can be like, that's wonderful theology, Chris, but what do we do with it? Like, what do we, what do we, what about here and now? What does this dreaming of the future have to do with here and now? Well, first off, it's certainly going to change some political stuff and how we view the Middle East and, and stuff like that, but that's, that is seriously a whole other sermon. But Stanley Hauerwas says this, the disciples may finally be starting to grasp what Jesus has told them about his own fate, which in turn is helping them understand what it meant for John in his role as Elijah to restore all things. To restore all things does not mean everything is going to work out the way we want it to work out. Rather, Israel's restoration 
entails a complete reorientation of all things, including our definitions of power. The kingdom inaugurated in the Messiah's presence restores what was lost by calling into existence a people capable of living as an alternative to the world. That such a people can exist may seem to some precious little evidence that the kingdom heralded by Elijah and John has come, but that is exactly why it is crucial that we do see Jesus. And so all of this about the future matters because we get to be the future people now in some ways. As, as best we can, that we become the people who have hope in adversity. The disciples certainly knew this, but, but for us, it means that we maintain hope and faith no matter what circumstances actually exist in the world. Because in the future kingdom, we can look and say, there's no more pain, there's no more tears. And as Paul would say, like, we, we can hope in that future glory that today's sufferings are shit like small compared to that future state. We could face challenges with unwavering hope, trusting in God's ultimate plan, and finding strength in those promises of restoration. We can have compassion to care for others. In the future kingdom, there will be no suffering or want. We live as citizens of a kingdom that now actively cares for all people. We look at the Imago Dei and say that all people are part of this. And there's a restoration that comes to all people, whether on the bottom of the financial totem pole to the top, whether they have all their abilities or not, whether they have all their cognitive ability or not. All Imago Dei. And we get to participate in what heaven's like. That's why the camp is so great. It's like this little moment where we're like, yes, the kingdom, Imago Dei, all valued here the stewardship of creation. This is where some of that bad theology gets really wonky. If we're trying to get off this planet, then who cares? It's the sinking Titanic, right? I've, I've heard some family members even say stuff like that. But that's not how the New Testament talks. It's a kingdom fully restored, so we get to live as, we get to actively care for the earth, knowing that it will be renewed one day. But, but, but guess what? My phone is going to be renewed one day, too. That doesn't mean I just get to throw it on the ground and break it. No, I want to take care of it until I get my upgrade. And we are invited to the same thing with the earth. Let's take care of it. This is what we got. Let's care about these things because this, this is the gift that God has given us until he restores all things. We get to cultivate a kingdom mindset. This is a future kingdom. We, we start aligning our values with eternal values. We, we behold Jesus, and he continues to transform us. It involves making choices. It involves being in his word. It involves praying. It involves doing all of these things, generosity, love, servanthood, all the things that Jesus invites us into. And then lastly, community and fellowship. And I think this is the most powerful one. We can and should do all those things, but in community. The future kingdom is a, a place of peace, of shalom and harmony, of God and its people, but people and their people. And living as people of the kingdom involves building authentic, loving communities where individuals support and encourage one another in the faith journey. Like we, the whole grab bag of messed up people that we are, are the people of the new creation. We get to showcase, we get to showcase the world to the world what the kingdom is like now. Like outposts, we're ambassadors. We have our own embassy here as, as citizens of someplace else. So 
So may we live as citizens of that future kingdom. But now, by the Spirit, we become God's, Jesus' presence, his body in some ways now here on earth, both, both human and with God's divine presence, just like Jesus is fully God and fully human. We are fully human, but because of the Spirit's presence, also in some ways, fully divine. How amazing is that? The grand thing that Jesus has called us into, a beautiful story and a beautiful love because of a gracious God. 